How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also made possible by our patrons, Mari B. Hedgecoff, Heather McKinnon, Aaron Patterson, Tracy Newman, Craig Williamson, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Chantel Oliver, Jamie Lang, Mandy Booty, and Monique Herricks-Pixado. Huge thanks to all our patrons. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Recently, I was looking through our list of episodes that we've done, and there's a lot of them. How many? I don't even know. 70. Really? Yeah, this will be number (laughs) 70, which is pretty impressive. That's amazing. Wow. I suddenly realized that there was a pretty major category that we had not talked about. We have not talked about any athletes. Ah, yeah. So I was really excited when this great novel turned up on my doorstep, which highlights a really, truly remarkable story in sporting women's history (laughs) centered in the 1936 Olympics. (gasps) Whoa. That's a big Olympics. Yeah, it's a pretty wild Olympics. Berlin. For sure. Rise of Nazi Germany. Yeah, the Third Reich just setting out to prove that they're the superior race and wanting to win gold and everything. Yeah, all all kinds of very exciting political implications of these games. We have Jesse Owens pretty effectively smashing Hitler's theories about white supremacy. Boom. But there's also a lot more going on here. Oh, really? What a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, there were some women who competed in the 1936 Olympics. Cool. And today, we are going to talk about one of them. (laughs) I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. The novel that inspired this episode is called Fast Girls by Elise Hooper, and it focuses on three track stars who went to the 1936 Olympics. Mm. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. Today, we are going to focus on just one of those women. Her name is Helen Stevens. And I talked to the author of Fast Girls, Elise Hooper. My name's Elise Hooper, and I'm the author of, most recently, Fast Girls, which is a novel about three trailblazing women track stars of the 1920s and 30s, Betty Robinson, Louise Stokes, and Helen Stevens. I've also written two other books. My first two books were about artists. My second book was about Dorothea Lange, the iconic photographer of the 30s and 40s. And her first book was about Mae Alcott. I thought that was a nice little serendipitous coincidence here that we were just talking about Mae Alcott, and here she is again. Wow, that's awesome. What led her to this story, her daughter was doing a report for school on Gertrude Ederle, 
Gertrude Eddeley was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Oh, can picture the photographs of her. Right, covered in lard. Yeah, and people pouring soup into her mouth as she swims. Yeah. I'm reading all of this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have never heard of this woman. And it really gave me pause and made me think, who are other trailblazing athletes? I think a lot of us really associate kind of the rise of women's athletics with the passage of Title IX in 1972. And we think about people like Billie Jean King. And But there are generations of women who come before this. So I started digging around. And I should also add, I'm a tennis player. So I really would have predicted this story to have landed with a tennis story. Instead, I've also run my entire life. I ran track in high school. I really wanted to run the Boston Marathon. and I'd grown up outside of Boston, and that was important to me. I'd watched Joan Benoit win it several times as a kid. And so I did that in 2001. And so I felt like I had a background in this. And lo and behold, what do I land on but these women track stars? Helen Stevens was born in rural Missouri, outside a little town called Fulton. She was the firstborn child of farmers. And her father really wishes he has all boys because, you know, what use is a girl to him on a farm? What he sort of failed to grasp, though, was how lucky he was because Helen is this amazing athlete. I mean, from a young age, she is out sprinting, out jumping, out throwing, out everything, the boys. Helen was every bit as strong and capable as any boy would have been. Mm -hmm. She was six feet tall. Dang. She was stronger than any of her brothers. She could have been extremely useful on a farm. (laughs) But rather than recognize that, her dad was just irritated by her tomboyness. What a shame. So she's really an outcast. And I think that's a really important thing to know about Helen. From an early age, she is tall, awkward. She ends up eventually six feet tall, size 12 feet. She has a birthmark over one eye. She's not your conventional beauty of the times. And she wasn't interested in sort of your mainstream activities for girls. But Helen wasn't just athletic. She was incredibly smart. She was very interested in history. She did well in school. She was interested and curious and wanted to understand the larger world around her. (laughs) And when her dad wanted her to at least be some use and quit school to go work in the shoe factory so that she could bring in some income, she fought as hard as she could in order to be allowed to go to high school, Mm. which meant she was boarding in town so that she's also removed from her abusive family environment, Mm. which is great news for her. Clever girl. She has several really formative experiences as a kid. She, number one, one day, in just kind of a clumsy accident, she ends up tripping and gets a shingle right in her throat. It will make her voice permanently kind of husky and deep. And so from the outset of her young life, she feels kind of weird. She's big, she's not pretty by the local standards, and now she has this really deep voice. She has no access to any kind of a narrative where she fits in, right? Mm. She is in this very small town in 1920s Missouri. She also had to deal with another layer of discomfort and unbelonging because 
she is starting to realize that she is a lesbian. Oh. Now, she doesn't even have the vocabulary to talk about this, right? Her whole community doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about this. It's not a thing that anyone would ever talk about. Yeah. She doesn't have a way of placing herself in this environment in any way that makes sense. Oh. In high school, Helen Stevens was playing basketball for a church team. The boys' track coach sees her playing and instantly recognizes that he is seeing something remarkable. Hmm. He asks her if she would come and do a time trial after school, just to see how fast she really is. She has never done anything like this. She's wearing overalls and hand-me-down work boots from her brother. Oh. She is absolutely not dressed, even for early 20th century running. (laughs) And in the first time trial of her life, Helen Stevens tied the world record. What? In her brother's hand-me-down shoes and overalls. Are you joking? In the back lot of the school, she tied the world record. Oh my gosh. Oh, that is triumphant. Pretty incredible. And you can imagine that Coach Moore was fairly excited about this. Wow. And luckily, Coach Moore is the kind of supportive, empowering mentor that any young athlete would dream of. Oh, thank goodness. He becomes the most important figure in her life. Mm. He champions her. He trains her. He identifies her gifts, and he then does everything in his power to nurture her talent. Buying her track shoes, he will advocate for her to be able to enter into local races despite sort of resistance from the school and superintendent. He and his wife will chaperone her around the area while her own family isn't being very supportive. Coach Moore really does make it possible for her to accomplish everything that's about to come. And for the rest of Helen Stevens' life, she will never lose a race. Wait, really? Not once. She Uh, will never lose a race uh, in her life. Holy cow. It's astonishing. Wow. And this is sort of where Helen's life takes off. It's 1935, so she still has some time before the Olympics, but everyone immediately starts earmarking her as the big hope for Berlin in 1936. And so she'll spend the rest of the time between now and Berlin running in various races to kind of build her reputation, build her experience. And so when she is 18 years old, Helen Stevens ships off to join the other members of the 1936 Olympic team. And they're really coming from all walks of life. For many of these athletes, this is their first trip out of their town. Now, around 18 to 20 women have been given the nod to join the U.S. Olympic team. But when they all arrive in New York City, they are suddenly informed that, oh, oops, only five of you have funding to attend the Olympics. And the rest of you have to hurry and find the money to go yourself. What? That's ridiculous. And so Helen was one of those five. She was so unstoppable. 
that the American Olympic Committee knew what they had on their hands with her. And so they, they have earmarked her as, we're sending you. But all these other women have to make these frantic phone calls. They send telegrams, everything home to have their communities raise money for them. This is 1936, the height of the Great Depression. $500 is not a small amount of money. Yeah, $500 in 1936. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's not happening. That's almost impossible to come up with that kind of money on very short notice. Mm-hmm. But they do. Oh, wow. Their hometowns rally round. It's really heartwarming to see how many of these women get instant booster clubs at home and Aww. people fundraising, you know, people on bread lines donating to send Aww. these women to compete in the Olympics. <laughs> Now, for anybody who has read about the 1936 Olympics, this is, as we said, the rise of the Third Reich. And Hitler has decided that this is going to be the perfect stage for him to showcase his perfect German state mm-hmm. and his perfect Aryan athletes. The rest of the world does not know what to do. There's a lot of countries that are talking about boycotting, mm-hmm. including the U.S., And there's a long, long debate about what is the proper way to respond. Yeah. I can see how it would be a debate. Like, how do you more effectively condemn his Nazi ideology? Do you do it by boycotting his Olympics? Or do you do it by, like, beating him at his Olympics? And it came down to a couple of votes. Hmm. We were a couple of votes away from boycotting Hmm. the Olympics. And I think that's such an interesting question now for us to consider. Had we not sent a team, other countries would have followed suit, the British delegation, the French. Could history have been different if the world had not given Hitler this essentially sort of staging area to show all that Berlin was building up to be? Helen is unusual. She is quite informed about what's going on. She's very interested in European politics in the history that's unfolding in front of her eyes. She's 18 and she's already read Mein Kampf. Oh. She recognizes much more than many of these older athletes around her what these games might mean. Mm Mm-hmm. And she also understands this rising Nazi ideology well enough to realize that Hitler is probably going to be interested in her. Mm Mm-hmm. She is his ideal Aryan woman. Oh. She is the warrior archetype that Ah. he is trying to champion. And so she thinks through all of this before she goes, he's probably going to want to meet me. How am I going to handle this? Whoa. (laughs) I I, I can't imagine at 18 having to think through, what if... What shall I do? This notorious, terrifying dictator (laughs) wants to be my friend. (laughs) Now, these 1936 games are where most of the norms that we think of when we think of the Olympics come from. Before this, the Olympics were kind of ragtag, bare-bones competitions, and all of the things that we now think of when we think of Olympics, the pageantry, the nationalistic displays... Mm. All of the showcasing that goes on at the Olympics really begins here. 
Hitler wants to make his grand show of German nationalistic fervor mm -hmm. and to prove his white supremacist theories on mm -hmm. a world stage. He ties Germany and his Olympics back to ancient Greece in ways that obviously the Olympics are an echo of ancient Greece. But for example, he begins the tradition of the torch relay from Athens mm. to the Olympics, mm -hmm. trying as hard as he can to tie a revival of ancient Greece and white greatness, which is, yeah. of course, hilarious to anyone who knows what ancient Greece was like. Not white, first of all, <laughs> um, to, to his white supremacist ideals. Now, 18 of these athletes from the U.S. are black. They have also had an extreme debate about whether or not they should be boycotting these games. And in the end, they decide that the best way to combat white supremacy is to prove that it's not true. Mm. These 18 athletes out of 360 U.S. entrants will win 25% of the U.S. medals. Yeah! They absolutely achieve their goal, and they <laughs> prove Hitler wrong. <laughs> Maybe you're looking for experiences for your kids this holiday season instead of stuff. Girls Can Crate delivers a monthly package to your kids that teaches them about a real woman who changed the world. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two to three hands-on STEAM activities and more. Girls Can Crate teaches girls that they can be and do anything. It really is inspiring, exciting, and just the thing to get you through the rest of these crazy quarantine times. And they would make an amazing gift. Go to girlscancratecrate.com and use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription that you order. Try it out now. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. So here she is. She has arrived in Berlin, a small town girl from Fulton, Missouri, barely 18 years old. And she's going up against the best runners in the world. Oh my god. The world record holders, the superstars. Imagine all of those voices in her head mm. telling her <laughs> it's impossible, that she's deluding herself, that she's going to fail the voices of her father, of all the people who have mocked her and bullied her her whole life. Imagine the pressure that she is under. Ah. Here she is at the starting line. And... It's not even close. She wins the gold. Yay! She's defeated Stella Walsh, who is the current world record holder. Yeah! And she has set a new world record. 
one which will stand for 24 years. Fantastic. She will also rescue the American 4x1 team coming from behind to pull out a win and bring home a second gold medal. Awesome. She has absolutely crushed the competition at these Olympics. Having been running for about a year, <laughs> she can't enter other races because even though women are allowed in the Olympics, getting women into track in the Olympics was quite a fight. Olympic women's events are for things like swimming and oh. sailing, where they get to look decorative and wear a swimsuit. Okay. The idea that men would have to look at sweaty, tired women no. who just ran an 800-meter race no. was so gross that it couldn't be allowed. Terrible. They did allow one women's 800 event in the 1928 Olympics, and the men were truly so horrified by seeing <laughs> women sweaty and tired at the end, they canceled it, and women were not allowed to run the 800 in the Olympics <laughs> until 1960. Oh. <laughs> You're a runner. Yeah, I did try. You run, and yet somehow no men died from watching you sweat. So far, I mean. So far, that's true. Now I'm nervous about it. I wasn't nervous before, <laughs> but. <laughs> Women weren't allowed in the marathon in the Olympics until 1984. Oh, yeah. 100 years after the Olympics started. So hilarious. They finally let women run. (laughs) And now more women run marathons than men. She has prevailed. She has beaten the competition. She has established a new world record. She's got gold medals around her neck. And as she predicted... Hitler is fascinated. She recorded their encounter in her own words for a reporter at the time here. Mm. He comes in and gives me the Nazi salute, and I gave him a good old-fashioned Missouri handshake. (laughs) He gets a hold of my fanny and begins to squeeze and pinch and hug me up. What? Now, clarification for our British listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Fanny means bum. Yeah. He's pinching her bottoms. Still outrageous. This woman who just won two gold wow. medals and is 18 years old. Wow. And then he said, You're a true Aryan type. You should be running for Germany. That's predictable. We knew yeah. he was going to say that. Of course. So after he gave me the once over and a full massage, he asked me if I'd like to spend the weekend in Berchtesgarten. What? Wow. He invited her away for the weekend. Ew. Yes. Hitler as sexual predator was not a new layer that I needed added on. Exactly. And yet. Here we are. (laughs) Now she declined firmly and extracted herself. However, others were not such fans of hers. Hmm. Newspapers began openly speculating about her sex. Oh. Headlines running, is this a man or a woman? Uh. And she was actually required to submit to a sex test 
at the Olympics to prove that she wasn't a man. Wow. Pretty horrifying and humiliating. And she must have just been mortified. All of the things that she has been tormented with her whole life, all of the taunts and teases that she's had from people at school, from her brothers, from her dad, now Mm. in the headlines on a world stage. Well, that is certainly foreshadowing the recent scandal. Yeah, this has been around for a while, apparently. Yeah. And it's also especially fascinating because Stella Walsh, that Helen Stevens beat in the 100 meter Mm -hmm. after her death, was revealed to be intersex. Wow. Some XY chromosomes and some X nothing chromosomes. That's the trouble with sex-divided athletes. (laughs) Where do you draw the line? How much testosterone is allowed? It's clear that it's a spectrum, not so much two extremes. There's not two categories here. And and the fact that Helen Stevens beat Stella Walsh Mm -hmm. in this race uh, undercuts Mm -hmm. a lot of the prevailing narrative of this is unfair. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it really highlights the the arbitrariness of how we set categories for sports, right? That Mm -hmm. in this sport, there's weight classes, and in this one, there's not. Six-foot-tall Helen Stevens is racing against five-foot-three women, and that's fair. It's all arbitrary. All of these categories are so arbitrary and complicated. Yeah. The Olympic team returns to New York City. They're heroes. She is a two-time gold medal winner, and she's having a fantastic time. She has a great time on the ship home from Berlin and then in New York. She's kind of feted, and she, I think, is not afraid to have some champagne. And I mean, this is the small-town girl who's suddenly got the world opening up to her. She will have some fun. She'll also have some heartbreak. I mean, there are especially when you read her real biography, there's sort of one occasion after another where she sees girls who might be interested in her and she sees some potential there. But of course, many of those don't come to anything. The phobias against gay people were so extreme. And so people will shut that down very quickly, especially from the people around her, her coaches, her parents, her family. And this will be where life gets even more difficult for her at school. So Helen has enrolled at Williams Wood after high school, and she's on a scholarship. Eventually, as she's being feted and visiting bars, and she's being pictured with sort of drinks in her hand, her small town at home is kind of horrified by what's becoming of their girl. Her school will eventually go as far to pull her scholarship. She will be scrambling to complete college. And this is all during, still, the Great Depression is happening. Ugh. Come on. She is not behaving in a ladylike way. (laughs) And they don't want her back. Ugh. And when World War II begins, that is the end. There will be no more Olympics until 1948. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously... In the large scheme of things, not having the Olympics is not the worst thing about World War II. But (laughs) it does mean that she has no path. Mm. She has nowhere to prove herself, to build herself a career or a life. 
Helen really will be kind of lost in many ways. People will see this amazing athlete and they kind of don't know what to do with her. She's not your typical sort of beauty. She's not like an Eleanor Holm who is a swimmer from that era. And that will work against Helen. And so it will also just then sort of further distance Helen from kind of the success she's had. It will also make her understandably very insecure and I think give her a bit of a case of imposter syndrome. She wasn't someone who wanted to settle down into kind of a mainstream life with marriage and children. She wanted to play sports. That's really what drove her. And so she will really struggle to find her way, especially under economic pressure, under social pressure. All of these things really demonstrate the uphill battle that women have encountered in sports over the years. And certainly a woman who wasn't eager to fit into kind of your conventional narrative of womanhood. Now, one possible example she can follow is Babe Diedrichsen. Babe was a real hero of Helen's. So Babe Diedrichsen has this amazing performance in the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles. She will end up becoming a golfer and, and she will become sort of the golfer. She will blaze whole new paths for women in golfing. And Babe is the closest thing she can come to to sort of an idea of what a woman looks like once she wants to make a life out of athletics. Babe excelled in the high jump, the hurdles, and, and several throwing events. This is her hero, and it's one of Helen Stevens's biggest goals to get to meet Babe Diedrichsen. And in these post-Olympics parties, she finally gets to meet her idol. Ah. So they're at this pool in New York City, and they will kind of challenge her. Well, let me show you a few things, and let's, you know, you should think about throwing some stuff. I think they're throwing what lifeguards use, those rings. Babe is the consummate competitor. Helen will then throw one of these things and come just short of Babe's toss. At that point, Babe's still ahead. Oh, nice try, kid. And Helen Stevens throws it so hard, it bounces off the wall at the other end of the pool, going <laughs> well beyond Babe's best throw. <laughs> and it's the second time she's ever thrown anything. And Babe Diedrichsen immediately says, I think that's, that's probably enough. That's probably enough of that. You should probably do something else and quickly leaves. <laughs> she is not prepared to support that's Helen funny. Stevens in being better than she was at throwing the shot put. <laughs> So if Helen Stevens had had the opportunity to compete in the 1940-1944 games, yeah. she may well have established this whole new career. She may mm. have beaten all of these records. She may have become this all-star athlete that she wanted to be. Mm. Man, it's so frustrating sometimes how we can be victims of our environment. That yeah. No matter how hard circumstances you, yeah. try to plow yeah. your way through the world, but you know, yeah. things like global wars, <laughs> pandemics, <laughs> yeah. they tend to throw you off. Yeah. <laughs> and they threw her off. There's sort of no one in her corner who really can help her out. 
Coach Moore, who's been such a great force in her life up till this point, he's kind of almost lost her to a bigger world. I mean, he's back in Fulton with his own family. And she's now being sort of paraded around by real Olympic officials. But there are just so many forces against this young woman. This young woman, I should add, who really wants to play sports. I can't emphasize that enough. She has a nine foot long stride. So really think about that. It's no wonder she sets all these records. Babe does suggest that she try golf. (laughs) And so she does. And she's very good at golf. Of course. She plays softball. She plays basketball. She will go on to try her hand at bowling. She'll become a huge bowling success. Basically, everything Helen did, she was really good at. And so she essentially gets to the point where there's no one to compete against. She'll have this rare problem. And actually, this was something that I think Jesse Owens dealt with, too, a bit. There was sort of no one to race against. Wow. She's great at everything she does. But... It's just pretty impossible to support yourself in any of these things as a woman. Dang. So she decides to work on the other end of it, and she becomes the first woman to own a semi-pro basketball team. Oh, wow. She is managing this team. She is trying to support women's sports in any way she can. Oh, that's interesting. Because I just reposted the news that uh, the first female general manager of a professional baseball team in America. She just got the job. Yeah. It only took 100 years. (laughs) Helen Stevens blazing that trail, too. Thanks, Helen. Sports Illustrated crowned Babe Dietrichson greatest sportswoman of all time. But I think there's a very compelling argument to be made that Helen Stevens could have been that athlete had the 1940 and 1944 games not been canceled. I mean, Helen was just getting started in 1936. I think that she could have been that athlete who accomplished so much. I think the Berlin games were just a taste of all that she was could have offered us. But she's not just grappling with the lack of a path for sports. She has no narrative to follow for any part of her identity. Oh, yeah. Her sexuality, Mm. her childhood. How can she make sense of who she is? She wants to advocate for women's sports, but she can't be who she is and do that. She's just in an impossible bind. Yeah. And I think, you know, so often we champion the trailblazers, but I don't think we spend enough time thinking about how hard those lives are sometimes Mm. and the losses that come When you have to use so much energy to blaze the trail, you have less energy to do the thing. Yeah. And what could she have done if she had not had to reimagine a completely new world where a woman could do sports Mm. for her life? Yeah. And what could she have been? She must have spent her whole life feeling like she didn't belong. Eventually, she begins working as a research librarian for the research division of the U.S. Aeronautical Chart and Information Service. Wow. So this is creating all of the maps for the U.S. Intelligence Service, doing the research that enables, you know, secret agents to do their jobs. That's a surprise move. Yes, it's not what we expected, but she was always extremely intelligent. Now, she loves this job, But she has to be extremely strictly closeted. She is living with her friend, Mm. Mabel Robbie. They will be friends for most of their lives. 
but she is working here in Washington at the time of paralleling McCarthy's push against communists, there was this much less well-known strong campaign known now as the Lavender Scare to flush out all of the gay people working in the U.S. government as security threats. Now, ironically, it had never been a security threat until they marked them as security threats and then made them vulnerable. Before that, no one had cared about sexuality. Now, all of a sudden, if anyone knows, she'll be fired. So she spends her life doing this work that she loves, but absolutely terrified that she's going to lose it at any moment. Mm. Now, the trail has been blazed. Yeah. And we really now are finally starting to talk about how we talk about women in sports. Wait a minute. Why are we talking about these women's clothing? Why are we talking about their bodies in ways we aren't with men? And we have the first generation of girls now who were raised by women who were raised under Title IX. Mm. That you have girls growing up now whose moms did sports too. Yeah. And so you're seeing these girls stick with sports in a way that I don't think our generation really was encouraged to. And it's Mm. very exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Helen Stevens, for blazing that painful trail. So yes, absolutely. Her life was limited in ways that just wouldn't be true today. But it was also so much better than it would have been if she had never been noticed by Coach Moore, Mm. if she had never gotten out of Fulton, if she had never met the love of her life Mm. or had this incredible career. So I think this is a story of triumph in the end. The story of a woman who made a huge difference in the lives of all the girls who came after her. This is a happy ending to me. Huge thanks to Elise Hooper. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, What's Your Name Podcast, where we have photos, links to the film of Helen running in the 1936 Olympics, links to the books, resources, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Cooper Cannell, The Westerlies, Chris Haugen, Late Night Feeler, The New Hot Five, and Doug Maxwell. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. <laughs>